Thank you for listening to our Celebration Sermon Podcast. Celebration is a worshiping community within Heart of White Ministries. We gather at 9 a.m. in the Red Brick Church Building on the Heart of White Campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Celebration community in Heart of White Ministries, please visit heartofwhite.com. Christ has made the sure foundation the rock of our faith, the rock from which we build a life, Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke quite clearly about some things through the course of his life. Many of those sayings are recorded there in the Gospels. We read them. Uh, We let the Spirit speak to us again with an enlivened voice of Jesus. Uh, This morning, I'll be reading from a teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 16. You'll recognize, I trust, the particular passage and uh, story. Out of respect for the scripture and for the word that we hear, I'll ask you to stand with me as you're able, and I'll read from Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 10. Jesus says this, Now, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little also will be dishonest with very much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? You see, no one can serve two masters either. You will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. God and money. The Pharisees, who, by the way, loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, to the Pharisees, you are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is often detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, to think that among the people hearing Jesus say that would have been those who as eyewitnesses would have spoken to Luke, the other disciples, confirmed these words and carefully recorded them, the amazing way they've been preserved across centuries now, that we might take them and translate them, uh, ponder their meaning, share with the church across cultures and ages how they've seen and heard your voice in this. But now we pray that Holy Spirit, even as you've superintended this process, you would now by your grace take the next step and illumine our hearts and minds to receive more than we could ask or hope or imagine. Not simply the regulating of our behavior, but the transformation of our hearts. Father, guard your people from my own confusion and brokenness. But in the midst of a challenging world, may the words of Jesus be like a north star that guide us closer to all that you created us to be. Thank you for the joy of life and for the fullness of your grace that brings us into not simply life in the bios, but life that is abundant. We thank you for your grace and pray together in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen and amen. 
Well, I won't bore you with the details of my story. Some of you have heard bits and pieces of it, and you're aware that in my early 50s, I had a temporary career transition, we'll call it. It's a time that I, even though trained and served as a uh, full-time professional ministry person, a pastor, it was a time that I was not in ministry, and instead, for about three years, I worked in IT support and network for a regional CPA firm. So I wasn't in the pulpit on Sundays. I was in the basement or working on the servers through the course of the week. About 1,400 personal computers and all the infrastructure to run eight states, 30 plus offices. So a pretty big operation. And I'm plugged into that in some fascinating ways. For that period of time, I got to work and share life with a lot of de-churched and unchurched folks, friends. Many were, to be honest, half my age. And as I think back on that season, about 30% were believers, about 65% had moved on, we'll say. And yeah, there was about 5% who were aggressively antagonistic. But we worked together, we laughed together, we did everything you do through the course of life. It's interesting that as I listen and interact with these folks on a daily basis, I begin to see and understand better their life experience, aspirations, values that were different than mine, but with people that I was sharing life and working with, depending on. In the summer of 2009, I left that organization, Mary Lynn and I, and our third child had both, I'm sorry, Mary Lynn and our third child had both graduated from college. At, At one point while I was working at this firm, I had three in college. Imagine that, including one at Hope. So involved with that, we stepped back from that season of work and went on to Fredericksburg, Virginia, where we planted a church. Now, as I was departing, and this is why this was brought back to mind for me, I observed two things that have stuck with me as I was leaving that IT team. The first was that virtually all my de-churched and unchurched friends were certain that I would be making more money. I'm not complaining, but I can tell you they were wrong. The second thing that struck me, because we would go out after work and converse. And the second thing that struck me was that for them, every career decision was also a simple financial decision. The reason you change careers or the reason you move jobs had to do with finances. That was always be the motivating thing. Now, we had lots of talks. We'd go to those continuing training things at this firm and they'd say, If you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. Apparently, the folks I worked with could only imagine loving more money in their work. There was plenty of idealism. We want to make the world a better place. We're working for social change and to make a difference in justice. But all of that seemed, if if, if you could just dig a little deeper, and we would over a frosty malt beverage, if you could just dig a little deeper, they seemed to assume that they could do that and make more money. 
And so it was very, very intriguing to process that as I'm stepping back into ministry. Ministry is a church plant, a really kind of a high-risk ministry area. I could view the life and the values of what I've come to associate and clarify as consumerism. It's the spirit of the age, friends. Consumerism, this idea, and I won't go into all the detail, we don't have time, but Bill's simple compressed definition. Consumerism, this idea that people buying more things is always good. Maybe it's more things at the Walmart, maybe it's bigger things at the car dealership, maybe it's through Amazon. Who would have guessed? I mean, anybody been to the Blockbuster video lately? Imagine how quickly the market changes. But what drives it? What's the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, as the philosophers say? Now, there's a tricky balance to this. I want to tell you something. I'm, I'm thankful to live where there's free markets and people have the opportunity to be provided things they want. Uh, it's good that I'm able to buy something that I want. Other folks then get to make it, transport it, and sell it. There's jobs. I understand this economy. But I want to tell you something. I was at the family fair yesterday. Mary Lynn sent me out shopping. And I counted, this is no joke, 92 different flavors of barbecue sauce. <laughs> She's texting me, I'm hungry, hurry up. I text back, you got me out of count, leave me alone. <laughs> I'm thankful for the opportunities we have, but 92 flavors? What does that express? I'm thankful, this is the tricky balance, I'm thankful that there is world-class medical care for my wife eight minutes from our house. Not everyone has that, including other places we've lived in this country. I'm thankful and aware that I'm now living in the nicest house I've ever had, driving the nicest car I've ever had. I'm not saying that is necessarily a problem, that there's any merit in living poor. Having gone both sides of that equation, what matters is the gospel of God's grace. I think it's good to make available to everyone and anyone opportunities. I'm glad for that. But this tricky balance, you see what can begin to happen? I think that I'm better than someone else because of what I have. Or I think I will be happier if I just have one more thing. Or a better thing. Or something that my brother-in-law doesn't have. You know how it plays out in your heart. And it plays out wickedly when I'm willing to protect my things and my lifestyle at your cost. As an ism, building life on more and more and more things, I want to tell you is what Paul would call in Galatians a different gospel. To think that you can find joy and security and hope and flourishing in a community by simply pursuing the next best great thing that the advertiser wants to give to you. Friends, that's a, that's a fork in the road that you want to get off on. Consumerism. And friends, you can be religious in your consumerism. Is that need for the next great thing. In a worse and most crass form, consumerism faces and reduces all decisions to what's in it for me. 
Can you see how it would play out? Now, again, the scripture speaks clearly to this, Isaiah chapter 3. And remember, Isaiah was the prophet who could look into the distant fog of the future and see one who would give his life by his stripes, who would die for us. Isaiah had this prophetic vision of the coming ministry of Jesus. He also says that there's a problem for those who are grinding the face of the poor. Look at Isaiah 3.15. Amos, the minor prophet, speaks in, the, in God's voice about trampling the poor underfoot. Chapter 8, verse 6, about buying the needy for a pair of sandals. Friends, I want to tell you this view of life that reduces people to the value of what they can produce and consume infiltrates and permeates our world and our life. It's the spirit of the age. It's like the water that a fish swims in. It surrounds and shapes us all, usually without even knowing. It becomes just the assumed sort of thing. After all, why do you get an education? It's so I can get a better job. And the more I produce, the more I can consume. And the more I can consume, well then, the better, the happier, the safer, the whatever. Produce, consume, produce, consume, produce, consume. Yeah, there's a tricky age but, or a tricky balance, but let's make sure we recognize Jesus speaks with painful clarity that you cannot serve two masters. You see, the world around us assumes this vision of life in that commercial is true. You realize that the commercials are a, a new sort of catechism, aren't they? They train us to think. Liberty insurance, only pay for what you need. I could give all the money I've got to liberty insurance and they really can't give me everything I need for hope, for joy, for security. Now, they may make it so that when I die, Mary Lynn's a millionaire, but that's not all that she's going to need or want. Friends, it's interesting, this, this balance of recognizing the wisdom of providing and caring and freedom and opportunity against the hard press of a world that says, this is what it means to be human. No. That consumerism can have an impact on the church and shape our thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. In a world of consumerism, in a world of consumerism, the church becomes simply one more profit, nonprofit agency among others. So we've got to ask ourselves as we think about Jesus saying you can't serve both God and money, we've got to ask what sort of church is that Jesus building? The consumerism lifestyle and worldview points us in the direction of a nonprofit services provider. The church does this, I get that. We evaluate the church in terms of what sort of service does it provide to our community, to me. Do I like this music style or that? Do they have the program that I need? Do I feel good about myself by being part of that church? Does being there send the right signals about my virtue to the world? You see how we begin to just be consumed by this without hardly thinking. Again, there's a tricky balance. I, I, I want to accent, accent that. While I was working at the CPA firm, 
we had to look for our church as a family. First time we'd ever done that. I can just imagine my kids in the back saying, Dad, we know where to go to church, wherever they write you a paycheck. That's all we'd ever had to do. So we were looking for a church as a family. And I want to tell you, it was a learning experience. Because as a parent of teens, I really wanted a church that would welcome and care for my kids. I, I understand those pressures. They're real. And we need to take that into account as we minister. But the consumer-shaped church begins to be shaped by the world rather than the one who gave his life for it. It becomes a matter of programs, and programs then need support, and so you've got to be fundraising to make the program. It's just one more nonprofit services provider. I want to tell you, Jesus wants to make something different, a community of disciple makers. Disciples of Jesus who can help make disciples of Jesus who can help make disciples of Jesus. When I was church planting, and, and again, we're seeking to, to build a church into a particular community, have it bear fruit, I was well aware that it was not so much about me gathering people to be a following of Bill. It was, can I help people connect with Jesus who can then help people connect with Jesus who can then help people connect with Jesus? Here's a secret. There's coming a day in the future when I'm not going to be here. It'll be about three years after I'm gone that we'll see what kind of ministry I had here. If it's about me in three years after that time, you will have hopefully found somebody who's better than me, which won't be all that hard. But if three years from now, folks who've come closer to Christ under my ministry and helped others come closer to Christ, who can then help others come closer to Christ, then we've got something, friends. Because this is what Jesus is committed to. It's different. It's a community of disciple makers sharing the life of Christ with one another and with the world, inviting people to join the journey. I want to give you a concrete example of how this has played out. I've seen it play out in the course of my ministry. The concrete example is this. Back in the 90s, all the rage, it was a previous century. All the rage was the seeker church approach to ministry. And at its best, I was familiar with that and implemented some of that perspective. It was motivated by effectively and compellingly communicating the gospel. It was evangelistic to connect with seekers and to communicate the gospel in a way that was relevant, connected to the brokenness of their heart, gave them hope and joy. That's a good thing. I was thankful for what I learned with that. But I also know that that seeker-sensitive thing can devolve into doing things that attract and inspire. Because if you attract people with an event and inspire them with something, then what do you need to keep them next week? A little more attraction and a little more inspiration. And what do you need the next week? A little more of the same thing. And after that, multiply that about five years and suddenly, boy, do you have problems. You've lost the vision of discipleship. Because there's going to be times that the hard words of Jesus, you can't serve both the kingdom of God and money. You're just going to want to soft sell that. So 
this is how that works out concretely. Now take that devolving, the seeker-sensitive, give them what they want, a consumerist theology, then you multiply that by a few hundred, put it in a megachurch context, and suddenly the numbers are driving you. You've got a payroll to make. You've got this to pull off. I know because I've been there, friend. I've been there. One of the reasons I answered the call to come to Hardawike is because I wanted to pastor people, not run an organization. I wanted to see people grow in the image of Christ rather than gather a following. If you're connected with Celebration, you know that two to three times a week, I systematically pray for you by name. And for those of you that will let me have a picture, I see your face. I never did that when there was 2,000 at our multiple services. You couldn't. We didn't even know everybody that was there as hard as we tried. Suddenly, the life of the church is misshapen by something Jesus never intended. Suddenly, to keep the programs going, which is why they're coming, we're doing fundraising for programs to you see how it breaks down. The church was never meant to be a nonprofit service provider doing fundraising to underwrite programs. The church was meant to be a community of disciple makers. And if you want to be discipled in the life of Christ, that means you're going to have to deal with issues of stewardship because money and the heart get connected. Your money goes with what you love. You're going to start loving where you send your money. Stewardship is a discipleship issue, but it's not fundraising for programs. That's the world's vision, consumerism. The question has to do, who do I love, what do I love, and how do I let that shape my life? So there's a dramatic difference between stewardship and, and consumerism. These are two conflicting worldviews. I can guarantee you over time, if you were walking in a submitted relationship to Jesus, studying the scripture, sharing life with his people, praying, there will be times that Jesus will call you to do something with your money that would not be your reflex. I'm not going to stand here and tell you what it is. If, if you want to talk and pray about it with me, I'll, I'll do that so I can help disciple. But I just know from my life and from listening to many of your lives that to follow Jesus may mean that you follow something other than the wisdom of the world. Let me read you about this scriptural perspective called stewardship. It means that what we own is not ours. It belongs to someone else. One of the books we've used in several of our small groups is Paul David Tripp's book, Do You Believe? And he writes this story from his life. Our first home was a little cottage that Luella and I rented on the secluded grounds of a colonial manor home in South Carolina. For a newly married couple, it was a great place to live. In exchange for drastically reduced rent, I did gardening on the property. Gorgeous old trees, lush bushes, and flowers grew everywhere. When the sun would shine through the trees, the property would be painted with light and shadows. The quiet of that serene place was broken only by the singing of birds. 
The owners of the property had other homes, so they were seldom there. Although we had this beautiful place to ourselves, I was very aware that nothing there belonged to me. I was invited to enjoy it and to take care of it, but it all belonged to someone else. When God says to us in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it, he means it. What the Bible has to say regarding the world and our place in it can be summed up in this word, stewardship. He goes on to write, stewardship impacts how you think about and approach everything in your life. We live in God's world as God's possessions, handling God's things. This is a radically different way of living from the way most people live. Instinctively, people think that their life is theirs for the living, and things in their life have no greater purpose than to bring them happiness. But God says, no, not only does the whole world belong to me, but you do too. Stewardship. It's a different vision of what it means to live out, and it will affect how we deal with our time, our relationships, our finances, yes. But not so that we can do fundraising to run programs to keep the machinery going. It's because finances can tell us something about our heart. One of the things I'm aware of with this vision of stewardship is that we need catechesis as well as counter-catechesis. Let me translate, that's Latin. Catechesis, instruction, teaching, what it means to live with stewardship. But counter-catechesis, counter-instruction, so that you recognize and discern and just rebuke, step away from the wrong, dangerous, non-Jesus approach. Stewardship, consumerism, they're conflicting views. If we don't begin to make that distinction, we will be confused about God's promises. God makes marvelous promises about his love and provision for people. Psalm 37, 25, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. I want to tell you, before I landed that job at the CPA firm, I was praying and wondering about that text because I knew I still had a mortgage and I still had, at that moment, one in college and I still had, and I still had, how does this work, Lord? There have been times that I've been discouraged, but in these times, you begin to realize that God has made promises and does amazing, miraculous, unexpected things. Now, you can twist that around. You take the promises of God and you make them a formula. If I do this, God owes me that. The whole prosperity theology that's so awash in our country and one of our big religious exports, oh, is this idea that God owes me if I do X, Y, or Z, which typically also includes sending the guy on the TV money. Let's be honest about that. No, follow God. He will lead you places you would not choose to go, and you will see him bring his promises to pass as he shapes your heart. Many of us have stories like that. Another thing will confuse, I'll give you another concrete example, is the whole practice of tithing. I hardly ever touch it directly from the pulpit because people get so wigged out. It was fascinating to me, my colleagues at the CPA firm, I had one who said, yeah, I'm not going to pay that church tax you preachers guilt people into paying so that you can be rich. Oh, that's not what the tithe is about. 
I want to tell you, for Mary Lynn and I, part of our practice since before we were married has been tithing. We take what we can produce, 10% of it goes to our church. But you see how that works for us. I'll just give you a glimpse behind the curtain. I can produce X amount of dollars, different amounts at different seasons of my life. For me, the 10% of what I'm able to produce is used to test my heart. I see if I can be happy, secure, satisfied, generous, living on 90% of what I can produce. If I can't, I need to go to the Lord and say, Father, where is the gospel missing a connection in my heart? Why is it that I don't have the joy of life on 90% of what I can produce? It's a heart test. And then you know what the other 90% is for? It's an opportunity for me in the course of a living daily prayer life and faithfulness to get a sense of my relationship with God because there will be times that out of that 90% that is his, he will call me to do something different. Now, I don't do that with flags or trumpets or fanfares. And believe me, even my 90% is not so big that many people notice. And that's fine. But when you begin to see that all I am and all I have is a gift from one who would give his life for me, then I use that 10% to kind of test my heart in an ongoing way. How's that doing? I mean, it's a dangerous thing when you think, ah, I better skip the tithe this week because I need to pay off my credit card. You understand that between programming on televisions, in between the plays on the football game this afternoon, there is a whole industry committed to making you think that you could actually be happy with just 110% of what you produce. You can get it, just borrow. You know, the scripture says that the, the borrower is the slave of the lender. Talk with anybody whose life is crushed by student debt, and that rings with a whole new kind of perspective. Friends, I want to tell you there's a difference between stewardship and consumerism. Stewardship becomes the place where the fruit of the Spirit is born out in our lives. We do it in the context of God's gracious life together. One of the reasons I'm secure, we're in a tough time in my family, but you know, Mary Lynn is so blessed, she hasn't had to eat a thing that I cook. Y'all are that kind. And I love the gifts of the Spirit. I've had some people, I'm keeping their names a secret, who've come to me and said, you know, I don't do meals, but could I come clean your house? Could I work in your yard? Wow. Friends, the gifts of God are various, and they called to bless people and to glorify God. This is what stewardship is about. It's about time. It's about talents. Yes, it's about finances, but don't make it only that. Stewardship. We can only begin to break the, money, the power of money over our lives. And I've included this quote in your sermon outline from Tim Keller. We can only begin to break that power when you see yourself as rich in Christ. Once I'm settled in God's rich grace, 
There's an abundance emotionally, which is spiritually, which is much more important, those two things, than what's my checking account. There's an abundance out of which I can live. Riches on earth, he and Kathy write, riches on earth bring some short-lived status. But we are children of the king of the universe. What's greater? Riches on earth bring some security. But in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called. Boy, haven't I seen that play out in my wife's life through this hard season. Riches on earth bring power, but we will rule with Christ. Christ has paid the only debt that could destroy us, the debt of our sin. It makes all other debts inconsequential. In Christ, you are truly rich. That's part of discipleship. Learning the love of God for his people shown through Jesus. Find that richness and it will reorient all of life together. It's a marvelous text. 2 Corinthians 8 Paul is actually doing some fundraising. This is a gospel-centered fundraising letter. Well, he points to Jesus, not the need of those for the funds, not the wealth of those who have the funds. He points to Jesus and says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Once you really believe that you have the riches of Christ by his grace, you can live differently. Now, I'll be, and, and close with this, I, I can be very honest. The, I believe the gospel calls us to a generosity, but one that's born out of gratitude rather than fear or rather than greed. If I give, I'll get more. And I'm very well aware that if a church doesn't balance the budget, you can't make disciples of Jesus. This has been a tough year in this calendar alone. Part of my ministry outside of Hardawick has been helping three local congregations close. The one you, we probably know of locally most is Bethany CRC, closed. So I get that the books need to balance, that you need to pay the bills. But I want to tell you something, friends, and this is the change from the, to the stewardship mindset. If you, I understand that if you don't balance the budget, you can't make disciples of Jesus. But I also want to say something real clearly. If you only balance the budget, you haven't yet made disciples of Jesus necessarily. So family of God at Hardwike, as we reflect on the upcoming year in ministry, we're in this together. God has given us great opportunities. But the great opportunity, greatest opportunity of all is to have our hearts and lives shaped by him. This stewardship mindset that grows out of the gospel of grace. Friends, imagine living a life where you have such security. Any of you have looked at a 401k lately? Hard to find security in a 401k. It comes and it goes. How about productivity? Gifted by God, my ability to be productive for the benefit of others. How about a simplicity? I don't need the latest, greatest, newest, best. How about a generosity? There is the gospel at work, the vision of stewardship at play in the lives of God's people. That's the calling. Let me pray for you. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your goodness to us. 
Thank you that we see that most clearly. In Jesus, the Word made flesh, God in a body, who would step in as our substitute, give his life, pay the the ultimate debt that we owe, and offer instead to us, through his grace, new life, transformed and transforming. Lead us now in the journey that we might grow to reflect his goodness and grace. Lead us now in the hope and joy, in the security, the productivity, the simplicity, the generosity that come as the Spirit dwells within us and transforms us. Thank you for your marvelous love. Fill us with great hope. Father, lead and guide us here at Heart of Wake Ministries, not to make a name for ourselves, but to point to the one who is the name above all names, the Lord of all, the Redeemer, our hope and our joy. Receive our praise and our lives and all that might flow from them, Lord Jesus. These things we pray in your name and all of God's people sit together. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our celebration community or how to support Hardawike Ministries, please visit us at hardawike.com.